thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, President of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, where we continue the discussion I've had the last couple of weeks about the doctrine of stare decisis. Let me explain to you why I'm continuing to stick on this point. For one reason is because by December 1st, the Supreme Court will have heard arguments that morning on the continuing constitutionality of abortion as a right under its decisions in Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. The issue of stare decisis will be paramount in the oral arguments that morning, and they will be addressed undoubtedly in whatever decision the Supreme Court comes up with. So if you do not understand the doctrine of stare decisis, then should the Supreme Court not reverse Roe versus Wade or Planned Parenthood versus Casey, you will not understand the unconstitutional malpractice that will have been committed. And so I just have to drive this point home because, my friends, the reality is when you're wondering what's happening to our Constitution and our constitutional rights, they have been taken away by political and jurisprudential liberals and their success in front of the United States Supreme Court. We don't get this principle right, then our Constitution is lost, and it'll be lost due to our ignorance. And I want to dispel the myths and dispel the clouds of ignorance that surround us with this doctrine of stare decisis. Now, I'm not calling you ignorant because, you know, look, most of you, I presume, are not lawyers, so you wouldn't know this. But the reality is most lawyers don't understand this, and they they have abdicated their responsibility to uphold actually the rule of law and the Constitution, and they don't even realize why. And I know that because I was taught the same junk that I'm trying to now remove from your understanding and and the lies that you are told and the lies that are perpetuated about the role of stare decisis in the interpretation of our Constitution. In fact, as I thought through the points I wanted to raise in today's podcast, I, I had to wait till the next morning to record it because, to be honest, there was such a righteous anger that had built up in my spirit that I knew I could not communicate effectively with you without sounding just really peeved throughout the whole thing. And I'm going to try not to do that. Uh, But I will be giving some emphasis to a few key points just to make sure they're driven home. So if you have an opportunity, uh, get out a notepad and take some notes. Let me encourage you, please, consider sharing this podcast with your friends especially your pro-life friends, so they'll understand what one of the major issues is in the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health case that the Supreme Court's going to hear December the 1st. They need to understand these things, so please help share this information with your friends. Now, for those who maybe have not caught previous podcasts, just a very, very, very quick review. What is stare decisis? It is a Latin term 
that abbreviates a longer Latin term that means to stand by decisions and not to disturb settled matters. In other words, kind of think about dad when he says, look, son, you can't go to the prom unless you're making all B's and you've got all C's. Well, uh, hate to say, the matter's been decided, right? And we're going to stand by the previous decisions. Dad's not going to waffle around and say, well, C's are okay. Now, you also need to remember, stare decisis is not in the Constitution, it is not in the Bill of Rights, and it is not logically required by anything that is in the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. Now, I said at the end of last week's episode, I was going to talk with you today about the view of stare decisis expressed by Justice Clarence Thomas, which is spot on. But I realized a couple of things needed to be discussed and put in uh, so that those statements by Clarence Thomas would be better appreciated and understood. And uh, as I said, it will help you understand what's taking place in the oral arguments with the Supreme Court on the abortion matter on December the 1st. Now, I also need to correct something I said last week because uh, it wasn't right. You may not have noticed it, but it is very important, and it has to do with, really, this doctrine of stare decisis, its application, and the whole concept of a living constitution. And you really need to appreciate this idea of a living constitution and stare decisis because they're strange bedfellows that have helped undermine our constitution and the human sexual ethic that we have in our nation. So let me, let me set the stage. Recall last week that I said that stare decisis developed as a doctrine in the common law and that the common law developed gradually over time as situations were brought before judges to decide whether the plaintiff was right or the defendant was right. And so the court would try to make those decisions based upon certain foundational principles. And then they would seek in wisdom to exercise judgment to apply those foundational principles to the particular facts of the case. So I showed how the law would develop. And I gave you the example of the dine and dash, where the person goes into the restaurant, orders a five-course lobster dinner, let's say, uh, eats it, and then dashes out without paying. And so a judge in that case, I said, would say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is wrong here because you went into the restaurant and you offered to pay the restaurateur a certain amount of money reflected on the, on the menu in exchange for him providing you a five-course lobster dinner. And you took that meal. He accepted your offer. The restaurateur accepted the offer, provided what you offered to pay for, and you have to pay for it, okay? And that was a, a decision that was evidence of the law that says you shouldn't break your promises. When you promise to pay for something, that you asked for and it's given to you, you need to pay for it, okay? Now, I gave a second hypothetical, and this is the one where I made a mistake. So I wanna play for you that hypothetical. So think back to my example of the dashing diner. For example, uh, another diner comes into the same restaurant, realizes that things are very expensive in this restaurant, and he says, well, I can only afford to have soup. 
So uh, he orders soup and a glass of water. And the chef prepares and sends out to him a full five-course lobster dinner. Well, if the diner were to dash, if he were to say, I didn't order that, I didn't offer to pay for that, I'm not paying for it, and walks out, well, a, a judge would not, under those circumstances, say, well, the last time the person came in and ordered something and, and, and left without paying, and uh, the judge ordered him to pay, so I have to order him to pay in this instance. Somebody said, no, 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 you, you misunderstand the principle here. Uh, the principle in the first case was that there was an offer to pay for um, soup, for example, and the restaurateur provided soup. And so he had to pay for the soup. But this is different factually. We now have people preparing meals that aren't ordered and trying to foist them on people. Uh, that's a change. And so therefore we need to have a different principle here that you, you, you can't do that as the seller of food, give something to somebody that they didn't order and then expect them to pay for it. What I said was that the court would make the diner pay in the first hypothetical that I gave you because there was an offer by the diner, an acceptance by the restaurateur, the provision of the goods for which the diner had offered to pay, and, and so he should have to pay. At the end of that second example, as I said, that the principle changed in the second example, the second hypothetical, but, but that's not true. The facts changed, but not the principle. You see, the principle in the first hypothetical was you can't make an offer to pay for something, have it accepted, have what's offered provided, take it and not pay for it. As I said, it's a breach of promise. And God, who is our model for law and understanding of what law is, is always faithful to his promises, and so we should be faithful to our promises. And I promised to pay, I got what I was asked for, and then I didn't pay. But that's the same principle in the second case. It's just that the facts were different. In the second hypothetical, the restaurateur did not accept the offer made by the customer for soup and water. Instead, he really made a counter offer, the five-course lobster dinner. And the customer, the person who had ordered the soup and the water, he didn't accept that counter offer. He didn't even take what was given to him. That would have been evidence of his acceptance of the counter offer. So he rightfully walked out. The principle did not change, only the facts changed. And that's where I made my mistake. But you'll notice here, the law is not evolving. The law is still, you make an offer, there's an acceptance, you receive, you pay. The law is not evolving. We would have said it developed because as we had a new situation come in, we had to take the fundamental underlying principle and figure out and, and exercise discernment and judgment, how does it apply to this new situation? But the underlying law was the same. So that's why I was saying last week, the, the common law wasn't evolutionary in that sense. Okay, but liberals love stare decisis because it supports for them the idea of a living constitution. Now, I, I, I'm going to have to explain that because 
if you thought too long about it, you'd think, well, wait a minute, that, that doesn't fit. Stare decisis says you stick with the old decisions, unless they're plainly wrong. Why would liberals want to stick with old decisions and have a living constitution? They would seem to be irreconcilable. So let me explain that. Liberals take this notion from the common law that the law evolves, which, as I just explained, is not what's really taking place. It's developing and applying the underlying fundamental principles to new factual situations, but they take that development and treat it as if the law is evolving to make you think the underlying fundamental principle is evolving. And as I said, that's not the case. That's where I made the mistake last week was implying the principle was changing. So what they do, the liberal, is they take a bit of the truth, they twist it, they remove it from its context to support their belief that the Constitution is alive and can evolve and its words can evolve and develop. And they foist on us a saying relative to the common law that doesn't apply to a Constitution. The reality is liberals do not like fixed underlying principles. They are evolutionary in their thinking. And they don't believe in any universal fundamental principles except the one that at the moment furthers their own utopian ideals. And, and, and that's where you might say to me, well, David, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, but the words and the terms of the Constitution are fixed. They're just like the fundamental principle of offer and acceptance it was fixed for both of those hypotheticals you, you gave me. And, and you'd be right for noting that and saying there seems to be an inconsistency here. But here's where there is consistency among the liberals. They believe the meaning of words can evolve. And again, that is partly true. Think of the word gay and what it means now and how it's evolved from the Roaring Twenties to the present time. For example, when I was in college, we used to sing this song, See That Brother Dressed So Gay? The devil's going to come and carry him away. And of course, we weren't referring to sexual content or activity in, in that song written so many years ago. It was talking about frivolity and gaiety. But, but here's the important point. If words can change their meaning, it becomes impossible for one generation to transmit an idea coherently to the next generation. Impossible. And that's what a law passed in 1789, the Constitution, is trying to do with respect to those of us who've come along now in 2021. They were trying to communicate what they were then saying and saying this is the law unless and until the people by constitutional amendment change it. And if we give those words in the Constitution a meaning they did not have when used, then there has been and there can be no communication from the past to the present. Now I want to, you to listen to this. It's the last paragraph from the Supreme Court's abortion decision in 1992, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the, the decision that is now going to be reviewed during the oral arguments on December 1st. And here is how the court 
closed that opinion. Five justices subscribed to this statement in this paragraph, and this is the one that so infuriated me because it is so dishonest and disingenuous. Listen, our Constitution, this is a quote, is a covenant running from the first generation of Americans to us and then to future generations. Now that's a great statement. Covenants cannot be changed except by the parties to the covenant. And, and actually, when we think of biblical covenants, when God makes a covenant, it cannot change because God has staked his own reputation, his own integrity, his own truthfulness on the covenant he makes. But they got that point right. Our Constitution is a type of covenant. And then they make this statement. It is a coherent succession. Well, now that's a great statement too. But let me ask you this. How can it be a coherent succession if the words that were used in 1789 are interpreted according to how they might be understood in 2001? You, you can't have a coherent succession. Think about what I've been talking about in these previous podcasts. The word liberty at common law, as it was used at the time it was put into the Fifth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment, was the freedom of locomotion, to move about without prior restraints. It had nothing with the liberty to hire a doctor to kill another person who happened to be in the womb. It had nothing to do with forcing a county clerk in the state of Tennessee to issue a marriage license to two people of the same sex. That's not a liberty from government action. It's, it's a liberty to require government action. See, the court changed the meaning of the word liberty from that which the founders and the adopters of the 14th Amendment understood it to mean. They have said it needs to be a coherent succession, and by their very own principles of interpretation, it cannot be. They lied. I don't know any other way to say it. Then they go on. They say, we accept our responsibility not to retreat from interpreting the full meaning of the covenant. Well, that sounds great. Let's go back and let's look at the terms of the covenant and interpret its meaning according to the common law context and foundation in which its terms and its words came from what it was derived. Oh, no, 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 but notice what they say. In light of all our precedents, let me read that sentence again now. We accept our responsibility not to retreat, yay, that's good, from interpreting the full meaning of the covenant, yay, that's good, in light of all of our precedents. Oh, wait a minute. You just elevated precedents, prior decisions, as equivalent to the actual words of the Constitution. But what if you change the meaning of the words in the Constitution. Why should, why, sh why should I allow you to do that? Does that not put precedence over and above the importance of the actual words of the Constitution as they were understood, so that as they were understood, they could make a coherent succession to the next generation? Listen to the very next sentence. We invoke it. We invoke this responsibility to interpret according to our precedence. Once again, now listen to this, listen to this to define the freedom guaranteed by the Constitution's own promise. 
the promise of liberty. Do you see what they just did? They acknowledge the Constitution uses the word liberty, but they substituted for it the idea of freedom being guaranteed. Well, there was no common law definition of freedom. Freedom is just whatever five justices on the Supreme Court think you ought to have the freedom to do. But the founder said, no, 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 there is a word liberty. It has a given meaning at the common law, and that's the word we use. We intended for that to be a coherent succession. And when you start substituting the word freedom for the word liberty and treating them the same, well, you've just broken the covenant. Now, Clarence Thomas takes this on. God bless that man. And next week, I'll actually do what I'd hoped to do this week and show you what Clarence Thomas has said, which will back up everything I told you today. So again, let me close by asking you, listen to this, take notes, understand it. Our Constitution is going down the drain because of this concept of stare decisis, meaning what it doesn't mean, that law evolves, so therefore the words of the Constitution can evolve, and then once the court evolves the words of the Constitution to come up with some new cockamamie right that never existed, then they want to apply stare decisis to say that's settled law. Now we can't change it. We need to stick to precedent. The whole thing is a sham, and Clarence Thomas exposes it. So please, get this down tight. Share it with your neighbors. Share this podcast with your neighbors, and then tune in next week as we look at what Clarence Thomas has said about stare decisis and how he exposes what I've tried to cover today. And I'll look forward to being with you again next week on God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.factennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.